Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Jerry Crouch. And uh, Dr. Jerry Crouch is in the middle of his transition from the military into uh, civilian life. So today is going to be a little bit different kind of point of view for everyone than normal, but um you know, without any further ado, Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to uh, be your guest. And I will tell you that I really don't think I'm very special. I, I'm, I'm a little unique, but nothing special. That It's one of those that I try to make sure to emphasize that and let everybody know that we all can glean something from something else. And, and it's funny that I, I, I say that because sometimes people get intimidated with stuff like that when the empty mouth doesn't get fed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Jerry, in a couple a couple sentences, tell us a little bit about yourself, sir, before we get started. So, originally, I joined the Army from the great state of Texas. So, wasn't a whole lot going on. I, I joined what some people call a little bit later in life. I actually joined when I was 22 as opposed to 18 year old. I wasn't old or anything, but I wanted to try to see what I could do in the world first. And even back then realized that without a college education, it was going to be tough. So that was before 9-11 happened. So went ahead and said, all right, let me go ahead, do a quick hitch, get some of that GI Bill benefits, and then I'll come out and just craziness happened, and here I am, all of a sudden, waking up 20 years later, retiring from the Army. <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, waking up 20 years later. I'm Man, I'm glad you see it like that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome, and we're definitely going to get into some more detail about that as this show progresses. Jerry, like I mentioned in the beginning, so you're in the middle of transitioning. However, you know, you're someone who's going to be transitioning already with a doctorate under their belt, already with a set of research experiences under their belt. Can you tell us, as someone who's military connected in the academic sphere, what is something that you see that military connected people, whether it be military or veterans, uh, are doing well in the realm of academics currently? I, I think the, the the biggest thing that I'm seeing is they're starting to get our message out there because when I was first starting in, in the arena, there weren't a whole lot of people who were really acknowledging that they were in the veteran category. It was almost as if some of the stigmas from previous generations were still associated with us. So you really wouldn't notice unless you happen to go to one of those colleges that happen to have a veteran center available to help right. students. You'd you run into them and then realize that happenstance, oh, you're a veteran too, or maybe at the VFW or 
uh, one of those organizations where you ran into them and saw that, oh, they happen to be a veteran, but now there's not that stigma associated with it. So we're able to get our story out there and let people know that we're a smaller subset of what our society is. Our, we have different experiences and we have a lot to offer because right. We've, right. we've gone and done different things. And it, it's funny because as I reflect back on it, and I'll talk about my military career a little bit more later, but six months into the army, I had deployed to Kosovo on my first deployment. And so being 22 years old, relatively young, only exposed to America, going to Kosovo and seeing how those individuals lived absolutely changed my dynamics of how I saw stuff. The, the lens that I was viewing the world in was completely different because the towns were set up to where they would only have electricity for a certain amount of time yeah. and then yeah. would go dead. So how do you keep the water in the water heater hot so that you could take a warm shower or a warm bath? I'm, I'm more proud of it now, but one of our missions was we had to escort the school bus for kids to make sure that somebody wasn't trying to kill them just because they were a di different ethnicity. When you see things like that at such a young age, it absolutely changes your perspective of what you're looking at. And so Absolutely. When we have those really incredible experiences, people in Austin aren't experiencing that stuff. Right. So right. we need to get out there and say, hey, this is what we're experiencing. These are the things that we are seeing that we've uh, been through and know. And there's nothing associated with that. Uh, one of the incredible things um, was one of the people that graduated a year before me in high school was an Air Force veteran and she uh, wasn't successful, but she ran for Senate in the state of Texas. So we're starting to see the veteran story getting out there. And I think that's the big thing that in academia that we're doing really well with now is that we've gotten rid of that stigma of being a vet, that you're gonna have PTSD, go crazy and do all this, these shenanigans that now we're actually viewed as value added. So I think that's the greatest thing we're doing is just speaking our truth and letting everybody know. Very true. Very true. And I, I agree with you. It's definitely been an evolution, right? Uh, it didn't happen overnight and we've still got a way to improve the landscape. However, in a short amount of time, it seems that there have been many more positives come to light, right? And I didn't know that you had been to Kosovo, Jerry, and I, I would I would like to just add in my experience as well because it one of my experiences overlaps yours uh i was in the town Nialane. we were the very first troops out of all of the k4 uh, group to to go into kosovo and there were days where that my mission was the same as yours it was to escort children to school and you know the amazing thing and I think about this often is just my experience as a elementary, middle school and high schooler and uh, the experience that I know some people have in the United States. And then looking at the, uh, for me, it was guiding Albanians to a school, ethnic Albanians yeah. and their strong desire to go to school. And they were willing to go to school even under uh, potential 
there were sniping and, and booby oh, traps absolutely. and things that were, you know, that's what they were preventing. And they were so motivated. Uh, I always think about the value of that and the education. And like you said, for the average American, this type of thought is completely off their radar, you know, and, and here we are witnessing it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it was funny because they used to give me a hard time because every chance I got, I would stop by the little uh, BX that we had on Camp Monteith and I would buy some Tootsie Rolls or some kind of single wrapped candy. And when we got there, they would come out for their little lunch, kick around the soccer ball recess. And I would give the kids some candy and I'd be out there wearing my body armor because I had to kicking the soccer ball around with the kids, just letting them know that just because this is the situation you find yourself in now doesn't mean this is how it's always going to be. Yeah, right. And so, like I said, th those types of situations absolutely change who you are as an individual. And I, I think that as we start going and letting more people know what's going on, because it it's funny because I was talking to one of my high school buddies the other day about it. And he's like, you, you don't really seem very sympathetic to homeless people here in the United States. And I was like, I'm really not. And he's like, well, why is that? I was like, the majority of the homeless we have all have cell phones. Our homeless isn't nearly as bad as it has been that I've seen. And I get it. They're struggling and I'm willing to help them. But I don't it doesn't tear me up as bad because I see that they're still in America with still such a great advantage that some of these other places don't have. And it's, it's crazy when you think about it because there's so much opportunity here. There absolutely is. It, it, who, who would have thought that some kid from Austin would have simply joined the army, did all of these things and took advantage of what's available. And if you don't take anything else from what we talk about today is that the opportunities that I took are available to everybody. The army didn't look down at me and say, you know what? We like you. Let us do this for you. Everybody else has this exact same opportunity. You just have to do the same thing I did and say, you know what? I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. And that's it. It's really that simple. Right. Right. So I love your positive approach. I, I love it. I love it. So uh, with that positive approach in mind, let me ask you a negative question. Uh, what do you see that military connected population could do better in, in academics? I think some of it is, and as time progresses, we're getting better with it. But I think that a lot of them still hold on to the almost the ideology that because you did something for the country, you deserve something. Right. And right. I think that's the biggest thing. And I tell people all the time, you know what? I got a paycheck. I, I received the benefits. So I appreciate you thanking me, but it was a transactional thing that that was my job. And un unfortunately, a lot of times you'll see some of the vets who are kind of jaded for whatever reason their service got cut short because they were injured. And so they never came to terms with it. And so they kind of, whatever the case may be, so they're still caught up on that. And it kind of manifests almost as a entitlement of, oh, because I did this, I should get this. And it's funny because a lot of times they don't realize. So 
they'll kind of give off that impression that you or I, who are also veterans, who did our fair share, somehow owe them. And it's like, whoa, time out, guy. We did the exact same stuff. So you don't get to come to me giving me the impression that I owe you anything. You know what? I did the exact same thing for you. And so I think that's the big thing is understanding that how we project ourselves, that we're really, because it's an honor to serve. I'm not going to lie. Yes, I got paid for it, but it was absolutely an honor to be able to do what I did, to put on the uniform every day and represent the country in those countries and let these other uh, civilians from different nationalities know that we're here to try to do our best to help them and get them to raise up, not make them Americans, but give them opportunity. And I think that we're getting a lot better because as time has gone on, we've figured out more how to deal with these things because I think a lot of it manifested from those who ended up getting hurt and had to leave the service a lot sooner than they thought. And so they're still just trying to hold on to that instead of realizing that it was a great opportunity. It absolutely is something that makes you, but you still have a lot of life left. And I was sitting down uh, mentoring a young soldier, former soldier about this, and I likened it to the old high school football player. I think it's great that you took your high school team to the playoffs when you were in high school, but you're 40 years old now. There, there was 20 years. What did you do in that 20 years? So yes, have fond memories. Take it in because absolutely it did make you who you are. But at the same time, you're still moving forward. There's still so much more to go. So don't be that guy who's 50 years from now still saying, oh, back when I was doing this. But what did you do with the rest of your life? Right. You can still right. make that great impact that you made in the Army. Absolutely. 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 And, and like you said, that there, there's been so much positive evolution that often you can use that as a springboard, you know, to, to propel yourself to, to do good and to continue to do good and not have to live in those glory days, you know, <laughs> of the high school football uh, stereotype. No, awesome. no, you're absolutely right. So Jerry, so you mentioned, you know, you, you joined at 22 and you, you got a little taste of life before you joined the army. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about when you went into the army, like what was your job like and what has your career been like in the army? So I, I, I have a crazy army career when, when you look at it and compare it to other individuals, because I, I think I'm up to my 10th duty station in 10 years. Oh, wow. Moved, yeah, moved around a lot uh, for deployments in that time. And so it'll be easy to follow it from the beginning. So I joined the Army as an 11 Bravo. And ironically enough, as I was going to the recruiting station, had the scores that I didn't have to. And it, it makes me laugh, all the misnomers and stuff you hear about oh those combat arms guys couldn't do anything when i got into the combat arms some of those were some of the smartest cats that i ran into uh, yeah we just just that's the opportunity to do those yeah just the opportunity to go and do cool stuff because that's where you do all the cool stuff so my dad told me because my dad was a retiree he was like hey 
I get it. You're not sure what you want to do. And it sounds kind of crazy because it was before 9-11. So we were a peacetime army. So he was like, go into the infantry because that's probably going to be the crappiest arena that you're at. You're going to be the most miserable there. So that way you can see how bad it is. And if you like it, you can stay in. You'll have the opportunity to change jobs if you want. There's so much stuff out there, but at least see how bad it can be at first, because then it only gets better from there. So I was like, okay. And so, like I said, I signed up as an infantryman with the sole intent. I'm going to do my four years, get out, go to college. And so I got to my first duty station um, and it was kind of eye-opening because my first duty station was Fort Drum, New York. And so they're like, went to the in-processing center. They're like, Private Crouch, come here. So I walked up Roger Sergeant. They're like, hey, we need you to come with us. And so they walked me through in-processing. So I was like, wow, this unit is squared away. I'm going to a straight unit because I saw what was happening with everybody else. Little did I know that the next flight to uh, JRTC down in uh, Fort Polk was – in a couple of days. So they hurried me through the process so that I could make that flight to go to training. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So thank you, dad, because like I said, the craziness of what you experienced. So I'm down at JRTC and that's where I met my unit. So here I am, the new guy down there in the box. And so 9-11 happens and I will never forget it. I'm down on a 240 pulling guard duty, prepping to go to Kosovo out in JRTC land. And they come across the radio and they call us all in. And it's like, whoa. And so we all load up and we come in and everybody's crowded around those little three-inch little battery-operated TVs that really couldn't do anything. Right. And it's like, holy crap. So it just all of a sudden went from, I'm fresh from basic training, OSA, to, all right, well, we were in the field getting ready to go on a real-world deployment. Are they going to tap us and say, you're going to Afghanistan. So it got real quick. And we came back to Fort Drum and they're like, no, you guys, since you're geared up for Kosovo, stay the course of Kosovo. And they got the unit right next door to us to go ahead and deploy. And so we went to Kosovo and got to come back and see them with their CIBs. And so got back from Kosovo and one of my buddies from high school ended up getting married. And so I went down and that was where I met my wife because my wife was his wife's best friend. So okay, ended right. up, yeah, ended up getting married, uh, came back and lo and behold, uh, my wife's pregnant and they're all, oh, hey, guess what? Now we're going to Iraq. You guys didn't get to go last time. So now it's your turn. <laughs> so here it is. My wife's six months pregnant. And they're like, hey, yep, you may not be coming back. And so loaded up and did the initial invasion of Iraq through Task Force Viking up through the north. So came back and uh, my wife's like, hey, you know, we got a family now. I know you're having fun in all this, but what are you going to do? And to this day, I think my buddy, my line medic, uh, he's retired now, uh, Brandon Baconier, because he was the line medic for me when I went to Kosovo. He was the line medic when we were in Iraq. He was like, hey, I know that 
you're talking about getting out of the army and just using your GI bill, but the army's really short on this job called respiratory therapist. And it pays good when you get out. So sign up, do that, give them their time, and then get out with an actual skill that you can take care of your family. And so I went home and I talked to my wife about it. We did a little bit of research on the internet. She's like, yeah, let's do it. And so went down and ironically enough, Brandon uh, went to RT school with me. And I tell everybody, because RT school was a unique military experience for me because they took the two year program that you would get in the civilian world and squished it in 10 months. So it was like drinking out of a fire hose. It, It was tough, had no medical background knowledge, no nothing but I had the determination. And so I was constantly hitting the books and doing what I needed to. I graduated from RT school. And then my career just kind of took off because I I was like the John McCain of my RT class. (laughs) I was dead last. If you were to ask my classmates, they would be surprised that I made it to the finish line. And and I knew that. So I, I used that as fuel. So I hit the books got all my credentials, did everything that I needed to. A few years later, a couple of deployments later, I'm down at the schoolhouse running the RT schoolhouse and the Surgeon General asked me to be the SME and advise as far as everything RT. And so I credit that to all my classmates because like I said, they they did it teasingly, but it motivated me to say, you know what, I, I can be that guy. And so went to RT school and throughout that time, I was actually enrolled in college because it was paid for. So when I got to the schoolhouse, um, Lamar University, a state college out of Texas did, they called it an online um, program, but really it wasn't. We were, it was probably one of the first uh, universities that actually used um, BTC. And so we would do our weekly class sessions where everybody would log online and we would sit there and we would get our lecture and do everything VTC. So it really wasn't online per se. It, the internet was the avenue that we used to get everybody together, much like with Microsoft Teams now. Right. And right. So that was how I did it and went ahead and did my dissertation on the nurse anesthesia program for the military as far as how they do their education, got a PCS and just stayed with it. One of my mentors, when I was down in San Antonio had retired, he was a Naval officer and he went to the Uniformed Services University. A lot of people and probably some of the people listening to your podcast right now don't even realize that the military has a medical school. So up in the D.C. area, we actually train our own physicians through the Air Force, Navy, and the Army. So we actually have a school up there that is a medical school that AMA gets people. We grow our own docs. And so he reached out to them, and he created um, an undergraduate school to coincide with the medical assets down in San Antonio because a lot of the programs for the medical field required the instructors to have an associate degree to teach. So he linked up with Ushu's, started developing the programs to 
get these instructors their degree so that they could be qualified to teach. And so in my spare time, uh, apart from my day job of actually being a soldier, I taught online with my buddy uh, to these soldiers to get them their education so that way we could go ahead and advance the force like that. And so that's what I had been doing. And now that I'm in the transition space, I'm trying to get into um, teaching and actually get out to universities and start sharing our story and let them know because like, like I said at the beginning, I'm nothing special. I'm just a guy who took advantage of all the opportunities that were available to me. I, I never said no when, when they said, hey, this, this is available. Okay, I'll go ahead and I'll do it. And I, I jumped at those opportunities and it opened some doors. And so it, it, it was ironic because like I said, just uh, the brief time, because it's been about a week since you and I have been talking, just the connection between you and I has opened all kinds of connections with other individuals that would have never thought possible if out of the blue you had uh, posted something about this and I just reached out because it just kind of intrigued me because right. I, right. I, I call myself a unicorn because it's very very rare to see an enlisted soldier that has a doctorate degree it's getting a lot better than it was but it, it's still one of those things that you really don't see a lot of so some of the officers have a little bit easier time as they're going through the transition process because they taught at the schools. So they, they've got that network already for them. So it's not as difficult a transition. Whereas as an enlisted soldier, you're not teaching at these military academies to get the network to vouch for you. And that's the one thing that I'm learning now in the transition process, not to jump ahead in the conversation, is that on paper, I look fantastic. But a lot of it in the civilian world is some of it is you got to have somebody who knows you in that network and you've got to have your brand out there. So anybody who's listening, go to um, professional organizations when they're doing their annual conferences, get out there and uh, provide professional development because getting your name out there is what's going to make the difference. And the reason I say that is a university, and I'm not going to bust them out like that, they were starting an RT program. And so they only wanted a master's degree. They preferred a doctorate. So got the check there. I did it when I was down at the schoolhouse. But because I'm that unknown factor, it became a lot easier to select someone who was more known and, and I'm not mad because I understand that's how it is. And it's funny because the whole time I was in the army, the, the belief is that people are going to be banging down your door. The, the impression I got that as soon as I transitioned, I was supposed to turn the light on and the, the civilian market would know that I was out there and they would be fighting for me. I'm not supposed to be out here hustling like I am, getting myself out there, letting people know what I offer. They're supposed to be coming to me. Don't they know who I am? Right. So on that note, I think that's one of the biggest disservices that all branches of the military perpetuate, right? There is that, oh, well, you've got all these leadership skills and you were in charge of this much equipment and the civilian population, they really love all this. 
well <laughs> yeah it it sounds like a good sell uh but you're right the reality is even if you have that experience even if you have everything on paper under your belt you know like someone like yourself uh, you still have to be recognized out in whatever field it is of work that you're yep. go- you're going to be in, you know, and and academics uh, is no different than any of those other fields you see in LinkedIn uh, or other spaces where people are like, okay, this is who I am. This is my research. This is what I stand for, and and you've got to be on somebody's mind. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, constantly. No, absolutely. And so that's been the one thing that I've been telling my soldiers, e- even now, I'm like, even if you're not transitioning now, just get out in that space now, because a little investment now mm-hmm. is going to pay off in the future. And really? it, it, it was incredible because I went to tap as, as soon as I was eligible, I, I was there. And so they, they opened it to where you could do your first iteration two years out. So right at two years out, I went right to tap. That way I could knock it out. And then lo and behold, I deployed. So. Oh, wow. Went, yeah. So went on another deployment. And so went and started doing that. So while I was there, I did the online tap as well in my spare time. Cause I don't got anything else to do. So to keep myself out of trouble, went and started <laughs> So I not only did the face-to-face, but then I did the online and I was attending uh, online programs while I was in Iraq to help bolster that stuff up. And I I think the biggest thing is seeing how, like like you said, the disservice, as I was going through TAP, there was a 06 who was, as soon as he finished TAP, he started to clear and then started his 60 days of transition leave. And he hadn't started really much of anything. And it's like, wow, wow. That, that to me was eye-opening that even at that level that they weren't aware of how the market was just trying to do that transition. And then it got even crazier because the whole COVID because I was actually deployed when all of that stuff happened. So, wow. Yeah. So to me, it wasn't a whole shock because I basically just came back to where I was, the the space that I was living while I was overseas. That's just basically what we were doing here. So it was just like, okay, I just get a little bit more freedom, but pretty much the same similarities. Yes, I got to see everybody else flipping out and acting crazy. And it's like, yeah, no, I just came from that environment. So it's like, okay, here here you go. (laughs) That's funny. That's so funny because in the middle of the pandemic, there's been so many times, you know, you log on to social media or whatever, you know, you talk to someone and they're complaining. And my thought always was, now I lived on a ship for six months. Like, Like this is nothing. Like yeah. I can go out in my yard and feel sunshine. I'll I'll go with it. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. You're you're absolutely right. And and again, I think that's why it's good for soldiers to get in academia because we have this perspective. Because a, a lot of these people get so caught up in that space and they, they get so distracted. And it's like, man, the the, the crazy stuff that I've experienced that 
it's just unbelievable. And hopefully this doesn't get censored. But while I was in Kosovo, since we were talking about it, we had the little sea huts and I'm sure you had them too, where they were the little elevated track, little buildings. So while we were there, because we were right outside of Jelani. And so they had an earthquake, first earthquake they had in decades. And so buildings started collapsing and stuff like that. So they called for our medics to go help out. So while we're on Camp Monteith, one of the guys was in the pisser. And so start shaking. And so he comes running out, didn't even mess with pulling up pants, nothing, just, just freaking out what's going on. And so you have those crazy experiences and it's like, you know what, here we are in the States. It's really not that serious, you know? All right. So somebody gave me, um, cream on my coffee when I just wanted it black. You know what? It's really not that serious. Let right. me just drink right. the coffee with the cream. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Precisely, man. And, and so I think that's the big thing is us who, who've got that experience to let them know that, you know what? You guys are taking stuff way too serious. Everybody's all about their phone and all this uh, inflated reality. Man, all these people only post the positive shit on their Facebook. They're, they're only showing you the good things. So you can't be saying, oh, their life is so good because they're only showing you the good stuff. It, it's like that iceberg. They're, they're not showing all that crazy crap. You know, they're, they're not showing that the car just broke down or that they're swimming in debt because they're trying to give this impression that they're doing that great stuff. And so us as veterans, we're just very, we've learned to just be very straightforward we're like, okay, here you go. This is how it is. Not because we're trying to be rude, not because we're trying to piss anybody off, but we understand that a lot of times based on our experiences, it's life or death. When you're kicking in that door, breaching, getting ready to clear the room, you don't have time to have a little frou-frou discussion. It's just, here's what you need to go, go. And you worry about it after the fact. After the fact, we can have those other conversations. And so that's why I'm a big advocate of getting us out there because sometimes that's what we need. We just need to have that hard conversation and say, you know what, this is how it is. You know what? And I, I, I laugh with politics all the time because you just see some people just say some stupid shit. And it's like, if you, if you had a veteran who was with you talking to you about this stuff, you would be golden because they would keep it, be keeping you straight, letting you know that that's just some stupid stuff to be saying. And that, that, that authenticity is tremendous to me. And my buddies like it because if, if I got to send a meal back, they're like, oh, send it back. Because they just don't believe in having those conversations. Those, it, it, it's almost like they're afraid of any type of conflict. And it's like, no, you don't have to be afraid. You just say politely, here you go. This is my position. And I think especially now, that's where we're finding ourselves at is that we've been so isolated from having these grown-up conversations that people are afraid of what conflict may come up when the reality of it is you just sit there, have a conversation. You know what? Tomorrow is a different day. I, I don't dwell on all of that stuff because you know what? Five minutes from now, I could die of a heart attack. And there's just not enough bandwidth to be letting all of that craziness just get in your head and, and impact that. You know what? 
if this is my last five minutes, it's going to be a last five minutes that's going to be pleasurable to me. I'm going to enjoy it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And so, okay, so you've brought up some some good points. You know, we're we're at a good spot because you're talking about um, the process that you've been through with transitioning a couple times and your mindset that you know can serve you and for others not serve them. Let's talk about this since you really are on the the cusp of getting out now and, and you're in the middle of the transition phase. So what do you see, Jerry, as your involvement here in the near future? Like what are your plans, uh, aspirations, stuff like that? So I, I look at it and, and it's funny because everybody tells you to know exactly where you're going. And the one thing I will tell you in the transition space that I'm in is don't close any opportunities because yes, I have the desire to get into teaching, get into a deanship and actually impact the future. But at the same time, as I'm growing my network, there are other opportunities that may coincide with exactly what I'm trying to do that I had never even thought about before. And too, too often people get so focused on, okay, well, this is what I did in the army. This is what I'm trained to do. This is what I know. This is where I'm going. And they don't realize that there are so many other opportunities out there. So there are nonprofits that need individuals to help with the training and that asset that absolutely I have no problem doing because that's what we learned to do in, in the uniform. Every day we put on our uniform and it was all about service. It, it was always someone else's needs before mine. So out of my 20 year career, five of that, I was away from my family and I was in the army. And, and, and that's crazy if, if you think right. about it. Like if, if you're in the Marines or in the Navy, you kind of expect it a little bit because when they get their ship time, they go out and that's just part of what they do. Right. But in the right. army, you're generally at that installation, doing what you do, uh, when you're not in the field, coming home to your family. But for three years, I was deployed. And for two years, I was at Walter Reed by myself because just how things work. Um, I was at Fort Campbell and I came down on assignment to go to Fort Benning. And my daughter was getting ready to start her uh, freshman year of high school. So it was the summer. So my wife and I talked about it because my report date was in the fall. So we went ahead, keep in mind, I had paper orders, moved my family down to get them set up. So once school started, they could start, I'll follow on. Well, right. that assignment disappeared because that slot moved to another post. Okay, it happens. But when I explained to them, I was like, my family's there. Their response was, why'd you put your family there? Because you gave me paper orders. Right. I didn't move them. The army moved them. I went to transportation, handed them my paper orders, and you guys did it. So it wasn't like you said, we might do this for you. I was being proactive. And so the closest they could get me, my choices were Fort McCoy or Walter Reed. And so my decision process, I just Googled it to see which was the closest and ended up going to Walter Reed. So I did two years at Walter Reed by myself. Oh, wow. So that way my daughter could have that solid education because the one thing that I saw 
is that with the movements throughout the army, a lot of families suffered because of that transition. So going from one state to the other. And so you're in Texas and took Texas history, but now you're in Virginia and Virginia says, oh, now you have to take Virginia history. Right. <laughs> so I saw all of that and didn't want um, my daughter to have to go through that. So I made the sacrifice and went to Walter Reed for two years by myself so that she didn't have to experience that and was able to do that. And it's funny because technology is great that, yeah, I was a part, but I was able to VTC every night, make sure if she needed any help with homework. And so it, it was not nearly as bad as it could have been. And I, I think that as we're doing those sorts of things, we need to understand that because people are experiencing this, we can mitigate that. And that's why one of my passions is getting into the academic space like it is because many of these veterans are gonna go out. They're going to go into teaching themselves, whether it's elementary, uh, middle school, high school, potentially even academia themselves. And right. they're going right. to potentially be experiencing these family members and their needs. So that way we can get at this issue because to me, I get it that the state of Virginia wants you to have Virginia history. But at the same time, when somebody transfers in, they're a junior trying to throw all that extra work mm -hmm. on them. Does it really matter? They, they took a state history that really isn't important because they're going to go to college and do whatever anyway. Let, let's just be honest. It's at that stage, it's a get them a baseline to get them prepared. No job ever goes and says, hey, please tell me about this history. So right. <laughs> to, to, to penalize those kids like that and make it more difficult, I, I think getting into that space and letting these types of things be known it's a force multiplier. And I, I think that's the big thing is that letting, because we as veterans know this and especially using my platform in academia to say, hey, these are the stuff these people are experiencing because my family isn't unique. This is being experienced across the force. Some are experiencing a lot worse, some not as much, but everybody's getting a little taste of it. So one of the good things that I did see as a positive is in the NDAA that's pending right now, they're looking to get some online courses available to for these students so they can get that knocked out and not have to really worry about it. Because a lot of times when you're doing this, you're having to go and use the local college or some kind of type of credit recovery to get those credits. Whereas now their big picture is saying, hey, we're gonna start a Department of Defense online high school. So that way, when these kids PCS, if they're put in these situations, we have the ability to mitigate that for, that, for them and not put them in this position. So I, that, that's kind of where I see myself going is because the, the, the military family is much larger than the veteran population. Right, yeah, precisely, right. precisely. And, and everybody talks about the veteran, the veteran, the veteran, and with that goes the family. And, and it's funny because a lot of us never think about it, but 
I think it's a lot nobler to be a military family member than it is to be a service member because I, I'm getting paid. I completely agree. Cause I mean, at least in, in our context, even though we always don't know every detail, right? We still have some inkling of an idea of what we signed up for. Uh, our family members, however, they don't have that luxury. <laughs> Absolutely. And they do it because you said you would. I right. mean, that, that's right. incredible. That's incredible. That's like Absolutely. going and buying a car and my neighbor paying my car note for me because I said they're going to pay my car note. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so I, I think that we owe them a huge debt of gratitude because they, at least for my family, they never once complained when it was time to go. They rucked up and said, all right, let's go. Let, let's do our next adventure. And especially now, it's been a lot easier uh, due to the technology. So right. they've been able to keep up with their friends over the internet. And so when most people would go visit family on vacation, we would go visit friends that are basically our family that we met throughout our different travels. And so we'd go and spend a few days with them as well, as opposed to just straight going and spending time with actual blood family. And I, I think it made the, my kids a lot more well-rounded and understand how the world really works. And so I think that that's a, a huge advantage that it gave my kids that because they've traveled a lot around, because like I said, this is my 10th duty station that I've been at. Having traveled so much, learning to make friends, learning the different environments, because where you're at is completely different. And it's, it's, I, I wholeheartedly believe that you are a composition of the people that you surround yourself with. And so uh, I, I'm always looking for those people who are pushing themselves to excel. And that's who I try to associate with. And it was funny because, um, like I mentioned, I was enlisted. So I was in a uh, first sergeant on my deployment and, I'm walking into the chow hall and I was eating with a couple of E5s and just offering some just informal mentorship. And so we're standing in the line in the chow hall and I was like, look, check it out. Look around and what do you see? And so they're looking around and they're like, people are eating, just kind of puzzled what I was getting at. I was like, so look, a lot of the people who generally are considered slackers who don't do a lot, who do you see them sitting with? They're like, oh yeah, they're kind of all together. I was like, okay. hey, so now look over here. All the people who are considered the hard chargers who are always doing everything, where do you see them? They're all together. And so I was explaining to them that we have that kind of herd mentality. So if you're not carrying your weight, eventually somebody's going to cut sling load and you're going to get put out of the group because you're not carrying your own. That's how it works. So you, you've got to be hungry and do that and you can make that group better. And that, that's what I try to explain to everybody is that I'm not super spectacular. The group that I counsel with absolutely are. are. The, the, the ones that I go to who advise me and push me in the right direction, they are the rock stars because they, they give me that solid information and I like to think that whenever they ask me for advice, I'm returning the favor. 
but but a lot of it is that 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 group of confidants that you have because we're not meant to get to the top of the hill together it's all about getting everybody up there with me i can charge up that hill and get up that hill by myself i can excel but when i'm up there there's only so much fire i can lay down and now i'm dead but if i get the rest of my fire team up there with me and we're laying to waste we're going to be successful and I think that's the mentality we got to get away from because so many people are so focused on that. I got to do this in in the competition. You're only Um, running your own race. You've got to be the best you that you can be. What someone else does doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with you. You can't control that. You know what? People may not like me. Hey, it is what it is. I, I can't let that drive me. All I know is that at the end of the day, when I look in the mirror, as I'm brushing my teeth, if I can look at myself and say, you know what, I did the best that I could today and that I advanced myself a little bit farther than I was yesterday, that's all that matters. That's what's winning. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what, Jerry, on that note, we've got a couple couple minutes left. Uh, okay. I, I love how, you, how you've put that. It's, it's so well. And it's so important and timely uh, in this area of transition for everyone, right? So are there any projects that you're working on currently that you would like to share with our our audience? So I had mentioned that I got um, a mentor. And so ironically enough, she's a military spouse. So as I was looking, there's not a whole lot of um, mentorship for people going into academia other than just trying to kick down doors and hope that somebody that you don't know will say, hey, yeah, I'll be your mentor. And that's really not the best way to get to, through one of the transition programs they linked me up with. It was probably about three months. They were like, hey, we can't find anybody. And I was like, hey, I have a healthcare management background. So if you put me with somebody who's in the healthcare space, they do training and education in healthcare as well. So we can probably make it work. Right. And so ironically <laughs> enough, it was a Air Force spouse, who's up in uh, New York, who was originally from Texas. And so we just hit it off. And so she's been helping me get everything together, getting my resume, my CV, uh, just getting me out of that soldier mentality because we don't really realize how much we've changed and how our mannerisms are, how we are. And like today, big win for me because I'm so used to 15 minutes prior sign up, ready to go. Here we go. And you'll notice that a couple minutes before I came in, all right, let, let's go ahead and let's, let's do this because she's been working on getting me into the, that mentality. And so just with talking with her, she's like, you have a lot of stuff. You've got a lot of experiences. And so I'm actually uh, in my free time putting together a book. I'm writing a book on leadership. I call it the crouch leadership model. Awesome. Awesome. And so that's my little pet project that aside from the transition space, trying to, uh, I'm trying to go ahead and use those little nuggets of wisdom. And, And I think it's very unique leadership style because you see a lot of the people who talk about Simon Sinek and those types of classic leadership lessons, but mine's more along the lines of just more common sense. And it's funny because a a lot of people will think, oh, this guy's 
kind of one of those super religious guys because the basis of it, because I, I base it, uh, I call it the crouch leadership model, but it's based off of faith, hope, and love, which ironically really isn't super religious. Right. It's based off of almost everything you hear at every wedding, because that's where they go through. And so they talk about it. And the reason I use that is because it's acronyms. Faith, hope, and love is acronyms. So it's all different things. And so, okay. so don't be turned off and think that, oh, well, it's a religious thing because it's not. It's based off of that aspect. And the reason I say that is because nobody ever gets to, I believe it's the second to last verse of that uh, chapter of the Bible that they're talking about. They talk about when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I became a man, I uh, thought like a man and did uh, as a man does. And so when I was in basic training, because how we get structured, the only thing we were allowed to have was our religious text. And so I started reading that and I got to that verse and I adapted it. When I was a private, I thought like a private. When I became an NCO, I did what an NCO does. And that kind of shaped my mentality. And so, like I said, that's been one of my pet projects is trying to get it out there. And through the advice of my mentor, I'm trying to throw that out there. So maybe one day uh, I'll add author to one of the many things that I've accomplished. Awesome. We're going to hold you to that now. You, you've told the world. So and, and this, this is how it gets done. You know, when you put it out there and talk to other people about it, uh, you're more likely to, to do it. So we're going to be expecting it. All right. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for being on today. Um, everybody that we've been talking to, Dr. Jerry Crouch, who is a soon-to-be civilian and going to be entering into that workforce space and also authoring a book. So uh, we are going to put any links that Jerry provides for us when we release this episode. We'll put it with this episode so you'll be able to find some stuff there. And anything he keeps us up to date with, we will also add links to that and keep you informed via our blog and this podcast and other forms of communication. So again, this is Dr. Luke McLeese with Veterans and Academics. We thank all of you for listening as always. And Dr. Jerry, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I definitely enjoyed it. It's, it's good to be able to give back. Excellent. Excellent. And everyone, until next episode, this has been Veterans and Academics. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.